Chapter Twenty of Carpenter's World Travels, Alaska, Our Northern Wonderland, by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter Twenty: Stories of Gold and Gold Miners. How would you like to stub your toe on a gold mine? That is how the Rhodes Hall Quartz Mine in Bedrock Creek Valley near Fairbanks was discovered. The mine has now more than a mile of underground workings and has netted its owners over two hundred thousand dollars the discoverer was l b rhodes a prospector who was mushing over the trail he had made some money placer mining but fortune had gone against him and he turned his attention to quartz on his way down the hill to the bedrock creek valley he stubbed his toe and fell headlong as he got up he looked for the cause of his stumbling and found it was a rock speckled with coarse yellow bits of gold he marked the spot got an outfit, and dug down until he discovered a rich vein of quartz. He staked out a claim and thawed a shaft to the fifty-foot level, melting his way through with wood fires. Every week he crushed enough of the best rock to give him gold for his supplies for the week to come. In the winter he worked underground. The next spring he tunneled in on the vein, and, to make a long story short, he finally established a mill of five stamps, out of which he and his brother-in-law hall have already cleared almost a quarter of a million dollars traveling through a gold country like this makes one covetous everyone thinks gold talks gold and considering the prices at the restaurants i might also say eats and drinks gold one sees so much gold in the mines and the banks that he feels like the beggar boy with his nose flattened against the glass window of the candy store there is plenty to be had were it not for the barrier between him and the taking at the clean-ups of the camps i have handled gold nuggets as one handles shelled corn and at the assay offices i have held up ten thousand dollars worth of pure gold in one brick at dawson i saw two hundred thousand dollars worth of bricks wheeled about on a truck such as you find at a country railroad station the gold bricks were heavy and worth from fifteen thousand dollars to thirty thousand dollars apiece at the same place i saw a ton of amalgam consisting of quicksilver mixed with gold ready to be shipped out to be reduced to gold bullion i have met at fairbanks a man who has melted more than fifty million dollars worth of gold dust and nuggets this is mr g e burrow the assayer of the first national bank he is a chemist and metallurgist of note and was the government assayer at dawson when the Klondike rush was on. All of the banks at Fairbanks have melting pots, where the dust and nuggets are turned into bricks for shipment outside. You see these gold bricks on the bank counters. Some are as small as a cake of sweet chocolate, and others are so large that if one fell on your toes, it would crush them. The assaying and melting is usually done outside the bank. Mr. Burrow's shop is a rude zinc shed like a portable garage. It contains a little furnace and the various implements of the assayer, including molds and bone ash, and scales so delicate that they will weigh a pencil mark on a single sheet of fine tissue paper or a single silky hair of a baby. The gold dust is brought into the banks by the miners in pokes or bags of buckskin as big around as your arm and about a foot long. The banker takes the poke and pours the metal out on the scales and then either pays cash outright for the gold according to weight or gives the miner a credit slip 
which entitles him to its actual value after it has been turned into bullion. The gold dust is of different values. Some is mixed with silver and is not worth more than $13 an ounce. Other gold dust may be worth $20 an ounce. When the dust comes to Mr. Barrow, it is assayed. That is, it is melted and its gold content tested. The assay is made after the gold is cast into bricks. From each brick, a corner about the size of a marrow fat pea is chiseled off. This is hammered out on an anvil and run through rollers until it is as thin as a sheet of paper. A little strip of this gold leaf is taken off and weighed on the fine scales. It is so treated by melting in a furnace that the impurities are extracted and a little button of pure gold is left. This button is weighed and its weight is subtracted from that of the strip before it was melted. The result shows the proportion of pure gold in the brick and there are tables giving its value in dollars and cents. I asked the assayer whether he did not covet the metal he handled. He replied, I never think of the value. I have been working in gold so long that the stuff seems to me just like corn or oats in the hands of a farmer. When I first began to assay at Dawson, I had never seen gold dust and nuggets in quantity before, and I almost went crazy. I liked the looks of the gold, and I bought nuggets and gold pins and chains made of them. I wore a nugget as a scarf pin and had nugget cuff buttons. After a time, I grew tired of them and gave them away. I asked Mr. Burrow about his early experiences in Dawson when fortunes were made in a week. Said he, the gold came so easily that they almost threw it about. The miners would go from saloon to saloon, treating the crowd and throwing their pokes to the bartender to weigh out the amount of each treat. They were so careless that a man might take out double the quantity and not be detected. A miner might have a thousand dollars worth of gold in his bag and spend it all in an evening. Now and then one would come into a dance hall and taking his seat in the gallery, call one of the girls to stand under him while he poured gold dust into her hair. A dance hall girl might thus clean up fifty dollars in a single shampoo. I remember a miner named Hauser who fell in love with a girl and got her to marry him by paying her what she weighed in gold dust. As she stepped on the scales and tipped the beam at 135 pounds avoirdupois, she weighed more than 2,100 ounces troy weight, which at $18 an ounce made his wife cost him over $38,000. Similar extravagances prevailed here at Fairbanks when the camp was in the height of its glory. Miners are always generous, and communities like this are far more charitable than those in a long-settled country, said Mr. L. T. Irwin, the United States Marshal at Fairbanks, to me the other day. The people here are the most generous on earth. It is no trick to raise $500 to send a sick man or woman outside. Only a few months ago, a man was taken outside with a trained nurse, and enough money was sent along to pay his hospital expenses in Seattle. I have lived in Alaska 18 years, and in all that time, I have not seen one person obliged to go begging. We have, you know, many unsuccessful men, the marshal continued. Mining is to a large extent a gamble, and where one man succeeds, there are hundreds who fail. I remember an instance of a man who came to Fairbanks to make his fortune, leaving his wife and family outside. He found no gold and finally fell sick 
and died in a cabin on one of the creeks. When the miners looked over his papers, they found a letter that had just come from his wife in a little town in Massachusetts. The letter was full of news about the baby that had been born since the father had left, and inside it was one of the baby's stockings. The miners stood around the dead body in the cabin as the letter was read, and when the stocking was shown, the tears ran down their faces. One of them reached out and took it. He pulled forth his poke and poured in enough gold dust and nuggets to fill up the toe. Another miner poured in more dust, and this kept on, the stocking passing from hand to hand until it was filled. But all had not yet contributed. The gold was then poured onto the table, the miner who did so saying, We'll dump this and start over again. In the end, it was passed around the whole camp, with the result that $5,000 worth of gold dust was collected and the money therefore sent to the widow. United States Marshal Irwin has the unique distinction of being the only man who has ever driven a flock of turkeys from the Pacific Ocean across the mountains into the Klondike Gold region. We had been talking about old times when he told me this story. My father then lived near Danville, Kentucky, in one of the chief turkey and goose raising sections of the United States. When I was a boy, turkey raising was a regular business there, and we sometimes drove our turkeys and geese as far as 60 miles to the markets. We had to put shoes on the geese before starting out. I laughed. You need not smile, said the marshal. That is the truth. We made the shoes by driving the geese through melted pitch and then through sand. The sand and pitch stuck to their feet and gave them a pair of hard shoes. Well, when I came to the Klondike and saw the high prices they were getting for poultry, I concluded I'd make a fortune by bringing livestock from outside. I left the camp and went to Seattle, where I bought 600 chickens and 84 turkeys. I took them on a steamer a thousand miles northward to Daia, and from there sent the chickens by wagon over the White Pass. The turkeys I drove. It was no trouble except they would persist in stopping at night. You cannot prevent a turkey from going to roost when the sun sets. I tried it, but the turkeys would jump up on the rocks. You might push them off, but they would go on a few steps and then get up again. However, I finally got them over the range and down to Lake Labarge, whence I took them by boat into Dawson. How did you succeed in the sale? Very well, but I had to learn how to sell them. There was a great competition for fresh fowl among the provision men, and everyone wanted to corner the market and crowd out the others. When I entered the first store and told them I had 80 turkeys and 600 chickens, the dealer's face fell, for he saw that he could not monopolize such an enormous proposition as that. I changed my plan, kept my mouth shut about the supply, and began to peddle them in small numbers. I got $20 apiece for the turkeys and from 8 to $10 for the chickens. Altogether, I got $3,000 out of my chickens and 2000 from the turkeys, so that my gross receipts for the trip were $5,000. End of chapter 20